and welcome to episode 202 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's Unpredictable Podcast. My name is Carolyn Neelachlan, and I am your hostess with the mostest, and I'm here this week to tell you a newly discovered, downright gothic family story I found in my tree, complete with a genealogical moral or two. I came across this story because I was working across tree platforms, and I found a problem I wouldn't have found otherwise. That happens a lot, and it underscores the need we all have to revisit different sections of our trees periodically and rework them, because frequently we will find errors. This weekend's prompt to revisit was the WikiTree Scanathon. I only joined WikiTree on Thursday, which was slightly suicidal of me, since I then jumped right into a photo upload challenge. A few listeners who were in the Facebook group told me about it, and I decided to try it because I figured that learning a new platform would give me new challenges. We had a team of three. Next time there's a scanathon, I'll let folks know ahead of time, and any listeners who are on WikiTree can join the From Paper to People team. It'll be fun. The problem for me with Wikitree is that I wanted to get a quick start and upload my GEDCOM file, but it's way too big. The trials and tribulations of shrubbing show there, and I don't have Family Tree Maker right now, so I couldn't chop my tree in two and upload my mother's side and then my dad's. So I had to do manual entry for every person I wanted to add. Only then could I start to upload photographs. I got to my mother's father's mother, and I was inexplicably drawn to her sister. That happens sometimes. You know, you just get drawn to somebody. I went back over to Ancestry, and I took a good long look at what I had for this woman. Her name was Luella Scutt. I know, it's not a great name. My great-grandmother's name was Deborah Dorcas Scutt. Not much better. For background, I really thought I had nailed this part of the family down a long time ago, but I was wrong. For the second time in as many days, and I'll tell that other story another time, I found that I had made a rather big error on Ancestry. I had mistakenly conflated Luella Scutt with another woman in the same county, even in the same town, a woman named Mary Luella Shively. So I extricated all of the sources for Mary Luella Shively from Luella Scutt, deleted everything that bound the two together, including an incorrect husband and all of the incorrect children. And once I had done that there and then double-checked family search, oops, I started to look for the correct information about Luella Scutt. And what I found was the most awful story I have ever found in my immediate tree. It also made me wonder about the character of my own great-grandmother. Ultimately, it really disgusted me. Luella Scott was married twice. Her first husband, Herman Orvis, disappears from the record immediately after they're married in 1892. In fact, the only record I can find on him to do with their marriage is their marriage license, and then nothing afterwards. I found the census for Herman in 1870 and 1880, but otherwise, he's a complete mystery. I don't know whether he left her or he died or what. Nevertheless, he disappeared. In 1896, Luella remarried to Henry Guy Welch. They had three children. The first, 
Guy William Welch, was born in 1897. Their second, Mary Welch, was born in 1898. And the third, George Welch, was born in 1905. This is where the tragedy starts. In 1901, Guy William, their eldest child, died of a combination of diphtheria and malaria. He was four years old. This must have been a terrible blow and a tragic loss for them both. They had a little girl who was only three years old at the time. At that time, young children dying of disease was commonplace, but it doesn't make it any less awful. In 1906, Luella died. Her death certificate shows the cause of death as burns from coal oil or gasoline, and it took her nine hours to die. This means that she was lighting a lamp in the home, the fuel spilled onto her, and she accidentally lit herself on fire. The entire household saw this as the fire happened at five in the morning, according to the death certificate. It must have been truly terrifying for everyone and a terribly painful way for Luella to die. Henry now had two small children to care for, Mary aged seven and George aged 10 months. He'd already lost a child and seen his wife burned to death before him. He had a lot of cousins in the area, but he had no siblings, and apparently it was too much for him. The following year, 1907, he too died. His death certificate showed the initial cause was appendicitis for a period of 12 days, but the secondary cause, and I quote, was insanity and refusal to take proper care of self for a period of 10 days. Presumably, this was because he didn't take medical direction and have his appendix removed. Henry's death made Mary and George orphans. Mary was nine. George was two. This is where it gets really gothic for me. Mary was immediately taken in by some of her father's family in Danville, Illinois. She was handed around from household to household until she died in 1932, unmarried and without children. She had people around her, but I can't imagine that her life was very happy. She was listed as a companion in the 1910 census when she was 12, and by 1930, when she was 32, she was listed as a foster daughter to a couple that did not share any last names with her family and who were less than 10 years older than she. The only thing I've been able to figure out about how they were in any way related is that the people she lived with initially and the people who claimed her as a foster daughter were all in the coal mining business. They were all coal miners, so they must have all known each other. She never seemed to have any kind of job or profession. She was listed in adulthood as at home in the census, and she had no independence. I can't imagine that this was at all fulfilling for her since she was never the lady of the household. And I wonder, did she even know where her brother was? Did they write to each other or were they forbidden contact by the adults around her? George could read and write per the 1920 census, but as you'll see, he didn't have much else going for him. In fact, George's situation was horrendous. I can't find him in the 1910 census yet, but in the 1920, he is listed as an inmate in the Indianapolis Orphans Asylum. Remember, his father died in 1907, so he had to go somewhere at the age of two. And just so you get the contrast in my family, his first cousin, my grandfather, who was an only child, was being raised by George's aunt, my great-grandmother, they had a very solid home life. They had a very solid family. 
My great-grandfather was in the Quartermaster Corps in the Army. They were stationed in Jeffersonville, Indiana, with family ties in New Ross, a little town between Indianapolis and Crawfordsville. But I don't understand why on earth my great-grandmother didn't take that little boy or both children in. George was born a year before my grandfather. It couldn't have been that hard to take care of an infant who was orphaned. And Mary would have been a help around the house, as girls of that era were. They were Dorcas's only sister's children. It just doesn't compute. I know I'm ranting, but seriously, think about it. Think about your own family. Put yourself in those same pairs of shoes. I know that if my sister's family were in that same tragic position, I would have taken both of those children in a hot minute. No discussion. And yet George ended up in the orphan's asylum, and Mary was living in another state, isolated. The worst part of it to me is that in 1907, Indiana led the way with an absolutely disgusting law, the nation's first eugenics law, which mandated sterilization of certain, here's a quote, criminals, idiots, rapists, and imbeciles being held in state custody. And the orphan's asylum was state custody. So any family member not taking in this little boy knew that they were placing him in grave danger of state sanctions sterilization. The law basically said that certain people were not worthy of reproducing. Paupers were included in this. Approved definitions of mental illness were sweeping at that time using terms like feeble-minded, so there's no telling what they included, ADHD, depression, epilepsy, autism, Down syndrome, and postpartum depression for certain, but all sorts of things could get a person institutionalized. So as a two-year-old boy, the year that he probably went into the institution, George entered the system that looked at him as someone who could potentially be sterilized simply for being in an institution. And his presence there was proof that he belonged there. Circular logic, if ever I heard it. His relatives, including my great-grandparents, all knew it and allowed it. George stayed there at the Orphan's Asylum at least until the age of 14, in 1920, because the 1920 census says he was there. Wouldn't living in an orphanage depress anybody? Mess with your mind in some way? Make you angry? Resentful? I think that if I were orphaned at age two and completely cut off from family, I would be less than happy with my lot. I've visited and taken photos of the Orphan's Asylum graveyard in Indianapolis. It is as bleak as they come. If he wasn't mentally ill going in, George's life might well have rendered him so. The eugenics law was overturned in 1921 by the Indiana Supreme Court. Apparently, it wasn't being used anyway, so there's hope that a vasectomy wasn't forced upon George, violating his 14th Amendment rights. But it doesn't make any of this less terrible, as you will see. In the 1930 and 1940 censuses, George is listed as an inmate at the Muscatatuck Colony Institution for the Feeble-Minded in Campbell in the southeastern portion of Indiana. The 1940 census also indicates that he was there in 1935 and 1940. Then I found his death certificate. It shows that he died in 1967 at age 62 in Fort Wayne which is up north, of primary gastric carcinoma and generalized carcinomatosis, 
and that he was sick for three months with known written in parentheses. This means that he had tumors all over his body, and they weren't sure how long he had been sick before they started treating him. And when I tried to figure out why he was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is considerably north of where he was born, and of Indianapolis, and certainly of Campbell, I was struck with the true tragedy of his life. It turned out that he entered the Fort Wayne State Hospital and Training Center in 1940, right out of Muscatatuck, and stayed there until his death. It, too, was a mental hospital, albeit with a nicer name. That means that absent information between 1907 and 1910 and from the 1910 census, he lived his entire life in state institutions, without family, and he died completely alone. Without looking at his medical records, there's no knowing why he actually was in institutions, apart from being orphaned and being put in an orphan's asylum initially. Maybe a family member did try to raise him for a while, but he was resentful or acted out, so they dumped him in the asylum. Or maybe he was placed immediately in the asylum. Regardless, he lived his life in big, cold limestone buildings without family and without hope. I have such pity for him. He was my grandfather's first cousin, and rather than being buried, his body was given to the anatomical board in Indianapolis, which provided bodies for research at the IU School of Medicine. I've created non-burial find-a-grave memorials for him and for his brother Guy and linked them to his parents. I look at the lives of my grandfather and his cousin George in parallel, and it makes me ill. In 1920, while George was in the orphan's asylum, my grandfather was attending school in Washington, D.C., right before his father was transferred to two years in the Canal Zone in Panama. In 1930, when George was in Muscatatuck, my grandfather was in Nebraska, finishing college and engaged to my grandmother. In 1940, when George was at Muscatatuck and then transferring to the State Hospital and Training Center, my grandfather was a surgeon in the Army moving his family from assignment to assignment all over the country and even to Japan in 1946. In the 1950s, while George continued to live at the State Hospital and Training Center, my grandparents lived in Hawaii. My grandfather was chief of surgery at Tripler Hospital, and they took troop transports to Hong Kong to have their clothing custom-made from Japanese and Chinese silk. And when George died in 1967, my grandfather had retired from the Army, and was lecturing medical classes in Manhattan. I can't help but wonder how differently George's life might have turned out if only Dorcas had taken George in. And that's the next thing that really bothers me about this, who my great-grandparents were. My grandfather was a massively spoiled only child, one year younger than George. His dad's position in the Army meant that they were always comfortable financially. Grandpa got to see a lot as a kid. He wanted for nothing. He was the center of every family reunion, as evidenced by family photographs I have. What were you thinking, Dorcas Scutt? How on earth could you let your dead sister's children go, be separated? How could you let deeply traumatized children be split up like that? Did you really only have room for one child in your home? I also wonder about Dorcas because my mom used to tell me that she was overly cutesy with kids, nauseatingly so. She said that 
birthday cards she got from Dorcas were always these sort of baby. And she acted like that with my mom, too. And it always made my mom want to hurl. She thought that there was something insincere about it. Now, I really wonder more than ever about this woman and about her husband, who also apparently didn't insist that they take in these two orphan children. Now, story's over. To the moral. Above and beyond the sadness and horror of this story, there is a genealogical lesson here. Actually, there are multiple lessons here. The first lesson is, no matter how much work you've done on your tree, there's always something more to do always. I've been working on my grandfather's side of the tree for at least 35 years, and I found written materials that he made up, admittedly based on his father's side only, but I never came across this story until this past weekend, and I had to construct it completely from records. Second, it's always possible to engage in some high genealogy and scrub, not just shrub your tree. Scrubbing involves looking at a person in a section of your tree that you haven't looked at in a while with a critical eye, as if you've never seen him or her before, and just walking through all of the sources attached and all of the relationships as if somebody else did the work. Be ruthless. Assume everything is a lie. Reprove all of it to yourself. We all need to be ruthless with ourselves because this is history. We need to be honest. Soft soap and wishing wells won't do the job. Third, when you hit a brick wall, scrub elsewhere. It's just as valid as any other work you can do on your tree. I have found two sets of errors in the past seven days that I had to repair, all because I went in with a critical eye. There were decently honest, easily made mistakes, but they needed to be fixed. And once I had fixed them, I was so happy. I knew that anyone who did rely on my tree for DNA-related facts had better information because of the repairs that I had just made. If you shrub and scrub, you will find extraordinary things, and it will make you a better genealogist and a better family historian, I promise. And that's all I've got for you this week, folks. It's a tiring and terrible story. So I think you're probably done too. Stop by patreon.com slash join slash ancestors alive to support the podcast with a monthly membership in my Patreon army, get some swag and access to my Facebook group. Until next time, do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Scrub your tree. And above all, expect surprises.